Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our online ministry at Grace Baptist Church. Now, when we're meeting in person, we like to help newcomers get connected and really feel a part of things. So if you're visiting with us virtually, we'd love to hear from you in the comments below. Now, Jennifer and I love to tell our children stories about when they were younger. Like when the hospital almost didn't let me into the delivery room for our youngest birth. Or when my son would pretend to be Oscar the Grouch for days at a time, like some method actor or something. Or when my daughter from her crib managed to grab my son from his crib and completely undress him. Now we tell them those stories to laugh and reminisce. But Moses told the Israelites the story of their origin with far more serious intent. He had told them repeatedly that they were the chosen people, but they were struggling to understand why. They were asking the kinds of questions that we ask ourselves. Why us? What did we do to deserve a land of milk and honey? Why not them? Why can't everyone just be equally chosen? Some proudly thought that they were just more deserving. Some thought God may have made a mistake. Others just thought that God was unfair. Well, either way, their failure to deal with these questions would undermine their mission and their understanding of the God who had delivered them. Now, one of the stories that Moses told the Israelites to help them deal with this was the origin story of the ancestor from whom they had gotten their name. He came to be known as Israel, but he was born with the name Jacob. And today we start a new series where we are, are trying to see how this person named Jacob eventually became Israel. Uh, his story today is recorded in Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. So if you want to pause the video at this point, turn to Genesis 25. I'll read it for you now. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to him, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? 
Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God. Now we're going to talk about what this story means, but first let me walk you through it to make sure that we understand what it's actually saying. Now the story begins about as beautifully as and hopefully as any story could. There are wedding bells and the couple couldn't be more perfect for one another. Isaac is the only son of Abraham and Sarah. He's 40 years old and ready to start a family. But he'd been patient in his choice of a bride. His father had been careful to seek one for him among his relatives. Rebecca was not only beautiful, but she shared Isaac's values. God was in their relationship and they shared a genuine love and companionship. They were a godly couple and it seemed as if nothing could go wrong. That is, until it did. Try as they might, they weren't able to concede, conceive. And their struggles were compounded by the stories they'd heard of how hard it had been for, uh, for Abraham and Sarah to become pregnant. When Isaac was born, Abraham was a hundred and Sarah was 90 years old, and that was with divine intervention. Was it worth even continuing to try for, for Isaac and Rebecca? Now, people love to tell birth stories. The conception stories are often not as common. People usually bear that pain alone. Isaac seemed to have learned the hard lessons from his father's shortcuts, and he decided to commit the matter to prayer and to wait on the Lord. He and Rebecca waited a long 20 years, but God finally provided for them. And with news of the pregnancy, they probably figured, hey, their problems are behind them. But their problems weren't behind them. In fact, the closer Rebecca came to giving birth, the more troubled she became. Not only was she contending with the weight of what was certainly twins inside of her, but it felt as if they were at war. They were constantly struggling with each other and it felt like an omen. She cried out to God, why is this happening to me? And amazingly, God answered her. We often struggle with God's silence. We figure if only God would explain everything, it would make things so much easier. But God explained everything to Rebecca, and I can't help but think it might have made her feel worse. God gives her a troubling prophecy of what was to come, and in verse 23, he says, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. God not only answers Rebecca's prayer, but he does so with a poem. He wants her to remember the details. She probably, though, wanted to forget them. It's a disturbing picture of division and lopsided power and upended hierarchy. No mother wants to hear that her sons are going to live in conflict. Her mind probably turned back to two other brothers born to an important couple. Cain and Abel also experienced division. And it ended with the older Cain killing the younger Abel. Is that what's going to happen with her sons? Rebecca would have entered the marriage thinking she was marrying the son of promise. 
but now it must feel like they've been cursed. When the day of delivery finally arrives, the firstborn looks more like an animal than a child. He, he's red and covered with hair. He, he looks like some kind of devil. What on earth have they given birth to? As they're still trying to process things, the second child emerges from the womb now. And he's grabbing on to the hairy thing's heel. It, it looks like a wrestling move. But it sends a shiver down their spines because the last time they'd heard mention of a heel related to a conflict was when God cursed the serpent in the garden. There, God warned of a war between the woman's offspring and that of the serpent. Is that what's happening here? They named the first one Esau, which means Harry. Not Harry, short for Harold. Harry as in somebody give that baby a shave. Now the second born they named Jacob, which means heel grabber. And as the Israelites heard this, they would shake their heads because it's a term for a deceiver. Someone who cheats his way through life. Someone who tries to jump the line and push his way to the front. And they had heard all about this sin in Jacob's life. Now, neither of the twins get particularly flattering names. But the fact is that the parents are stunned by the births. As the boys grow, so does the tension between them. Esau becomes a skilled hunter, trained killer. With rifles and a pickup truck, he's the original redneck. Jacob, on the other hand, was a quiet boy. He didn't make a lot of trouble and he didn't like to get out much. But unfortunately, the parents picked their favorites. The macho Esau was close to his dad, while Jacob was the mama's boy. Not only did this create tension between the sons, but it was a threat to Jacob because his father would decide their inheritances. When his father had faced a similar challenge in dealing with his wife's barrenness, Isaac had sought the Lord in prayer and waited patiently for 20 years. Jacob thought he had a better idea. Esau was return, has returned hungry and exhausted from an unsuccessful hunting trip. And Jacob has set a trap for the hungry animal. He's cooked some red stew, but he won't give it over unless Esau gives up his birthright. Jacob is a skilled hunter after all. Esau responds the way Adam did in the garden. Deceived by a crafty snake, he trades his inheritance for a bowl of red stew. And then the story just ends with the ominous words, thus Esau despised his birthright. It's a chilling story, isn't it? If you were going to write a horror story, this might work as your opening. But what's it doing in the Bible? Why would Moses have told this story to the Israelites? I believe it answers two important questions, and I'd like to consider them one at a time. The first is, why does God choose to save some people and not others? The Israelites were the chosen people, but why had God chosen them? And in the New Testament, the same language is applied to followers of Jesus Christ. Why does God choose to save some people and not others? It can't be because they have more potential. God doesn't save people because they look particularly promising. We know that because in verse 21, we saw that Israel shouldn't have even been alive. Rebecca was barren, just as Sarah had been. If you try to have children for 20 years, it's probably not going to happen. God didn't choose Jacob 
because of his potential. Because his potential was to not even exist. God also doesn't choose people because they're from the right family. I, I was just talking with a friend recently who said, I think your faith really comes down to what family you were born in. Well, Israel was to learn that can't be true. Because in verse 23, it tells us that Jacob and Esau were born in the same family. But they went completely different directions. Just being born to Isaac and Rebekah wasn't enough to be one of the chosen people. God also doesn't choose people the way you pick someone for a sports team. He clearly didn't choose Jacob because of how strong he looked. In fact, in verse 23, we learned that one of the twins would be stronger than the other. And almost as soon as, they born, as they're born, it's obvious it's not going to be Jacob. Esau could take him in an arm wrestling match any day. In fact, the same was true of the nation of Israel. He had called them to possess the promised land, and they probably questioned his choice. Usually you would pick the nation with the biggest and strongest army, particularly if you were going into a land where there were giants like Goliath. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, God, God, God said to them clearly, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It's like it's the NBA draft. And God takes as his top pick a one-armed guy who's four foot nine and can't jump. Like, who does that, right? But apparently God does. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking, well, God wouldn't get bogged down with externals like that. He's not going to take the strong one. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. He probably chooses the most moral people. But it can't be that. Because God told Rebecca about his choice of Jacob over Esau before they were even born. They hadn't even had a chance to do anything yet. And in fact, Paul makes that, that point in, in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. That's where he says, Though, we're, though they were not yet born and had not done and, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. God doesn't choose people because they're so moral. If he did, he wouldn't have gone with a heel grabber. Even coming out of the womb, Jacob was trying to jump the line. He wanted to be the first. People sometimes think that God functions like a powerful politician. And because I'm a pastor, people will say things to me like, could you put in a good word for me? They, they figure that connections must be important to get ahead with God. Well, that theory is shot down with Jacob because we learn in verse 28 that Isaac favored Esau. Now, favoritism is all, always a recipe for disaster in a family. But the problem for Jacob was it meant that the one person who would hand out the family inheritance and blessing favored his brother. Clearly, God doesn't choose people because they have the right connections. Now, finally, maybe some of you are thinking, well, 
I can't justify everything that he did, but you have to admire Jacob's chutzpah. Look how hard he worked for that birthright. But Jacob is never commended for all of his schemes and plans to get the blessing. Quite the opposite. God doesn't choose people for salvation because they work harder for it. In fact, the point of this story of Jacob's birth and early life seems to be to rule out almost any possible basis for God's choice of Jacob other than God's free act of mercy. The only basis by which God chooses to save some and not others is his mercy. It was only his mercy that moved him to allow Rebekah to conceive in verse 21, even though she had been, she had tried for 20 years and had been unable to have children. It, it was only his mercy that moved him to choose the younger Jacob, even though he had nothing to offer and everything stacked against him. And it's only his mercy that moved him to choose us. Paul writes, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the will. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the scripture declares that God chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined or predetermined, he decided ahead of time that he would adopt you. And it says he did it in love. He set his love upon you as an act of mercy and grace. You and I are the one-armed, four-foot-nine non-jumpers that God drafted to his basketball team. We're the tone-deaf people with nodes that God picked to be part of his choir. We're the colorblind people with no fashion sense that God chose to decorate his mansion. And understanding this is important because we often feel like imposters. We feel as if we better keep our heads down because if God finds out who we really are, we'll surely be off the team. Surely he's looking for someone with more potential. But the fact is, God has deliberately chosen an, un an unlikely team in order to magnify his grace. And as we let this truth sink in, we realize there's nothing more ridiculous than a proud Christian, a follower of Christ who looks down on others, just doesn't understand the grace of God. It also helps us realize that God expects us to carry out his mission. We can read the Bible thinking, wow, that's a really good idea. If some qualified person comes along who will do it, I'll be sure to pray for them. But that totally misunderstands God's grace. His plan is predicated on working through an unlikely band of misfits. Not only did we make the team, but he expects us to play the game. Even though we're tone deaf, he expects us to sing. And by his grace, we can. So far, we've seen that God chooses to save some people and not others as an act of his mercy. It can be an incredibly liberating and encouraging truth. But the next question people have is whether it's fair. Let's face it, it's not fair, is it? It doesn't sound fair. It doesn't feel fair that God 
chooses some people for salvation before the foundation of the world, it's not even based on any talents or merit they have. But just as Jacob helps us make sense of one side of the equation, Esau helps us to understand the other. We'll just consider him briefly. Some of you are watching your clocks, so you're watching your watches. Don't, don't worry. Esau was the one who was passed over in this story. He had a lot more going for him than Jacob. He was older. He was stronger. He had more seniority, better connections. Wasn't it unfair that God didn't choose him instead? We can think that way, but the message of the story is that Esau just wasn't that interested. In verse 32, he says that he's about to die of hunger. But the reality is that he just thought more about his empty stomach than he did about the blessing of God. He preferred a bowl of soup to a spiritual inheritance. And he stands in a long line of people who have concluded exactly the same. At first, we think it's unfair that God chooses a people for himself, even though they've done nothing to deserve it. Why doesn't God hold tryouts and give everyone an equal chance? But the message of the Bible is that nobody wants to be on God's team. Adam chose a piece of fruit over a paradise-like relationship with God. Esau chose a bowl of soup over God's promise and blessing. Today, people would rather nurse a hangover rather than meet with God on a Sunday morning. Some prefer religion over the true God. Some prefer their careers over God. Some prefer their privacy or their independence or their freedom or their social causes. Some prefer their hobbies or their relationships or their sin. As Romans 3.11 says, No one understands, no one seeks for God. Left to themselves, nobody would want to be on God's team. We all would have traded him for a bowl of soup. And we all would have wound up separated from him forever. So in his mercy, he decided to choose a group of unqualified, unlovables and love them in such a way that they would turn to him in spite of themselves. If he hadn't, he would have had no team. When the whistle blew for the big game to start, we'd have all been next door ordering another bowl of soup. So how are you going to carry Jacob and Esau with you this week? Jacob reminds me of just how unqualified I am to call myself one of God's people. I don't deserve the grace that God has poured out in my life. I don't deserve the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for me on the cross. I don't deserve any of it. And so all I can do is bow down and worship. Jacob also reminds me that God didn't make a mistake in choosing someone so unqualified. God has a role for us on the team and he expects us to fulfill it. We can point to all of our faults and shortcomings, but God knew all that and chose us anyway. So we need to get in the game and live out the call and God has placed on our lives. Now, Esau reminds me that it's the mark of those who are opposed to God that they trade his blessing for soup or sex or status or sin. Are you looking for just a little bit of God? Do you want a snack-sized portion of the divine? Do you want God's blessing if it fits into your schedule, if you're not too hungry? 
as C.S. Lewis said, Christianity if false is of no importance, and if true is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Let's respond to the blessing of God with a sense of awe that it, it deserves and with the infinite importance that it calls us to. And let's turn to God now in prayer. Heavenly Father, when we consider how unqualified, how we have nothing to offer, that you have nothing to gain from us, we can only stand back in awe that you drew us to yourself. Thank you, Father, for the grace and the love that you have poured out into our lives. And you didn't make a mistake. You knew what you were getting into when you called us. And you've called us to a mission. A mission to spread your love and good news with a world that is in desperate need of it. So help us, Father, to get in the game. Help us to be a part of what you are doing in people's lives. And guard us, Father, from following the way of Esau, from tra for trading your blessings for a bowl of soup, for feeding our stomachs instead of feeding our souls and giving ourselves to all that you've called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has encouraged you and stirred you up for the mission that God has called us to. But it also may have brought up some questions for you also. If so, send me an email or leave me a comment below. And if you know someone who would be encouraged by this message, share it with them and point them to the God who set his love on us. For more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.